monitoring tools are used by every area of an organization. Business development teams use monitoring to understand the metrics for product performance. Finance teams need to understand how the costs of cloud computing resources are changing. Site reliability engineers use monitoring dashboards to ensure that applications are up and running without problematic latency. Product managers evaluate the results of A-B tests based off of the monitoring data of how users are reacting to new features. A monitoring system needs to be able to handle the large volumes of data that are being generated at a high velocity. The data needs to be queryable in an aggregated format, which might require an ETL system for getting data into columnar format. Alexander Pucher is an engineer at LinkedIn, where he works on a monitoring platform called Third Eye. Third Eye is built on top of Apache Pino, a distributed columnar storage engine that ingests data and serves analytical queries at low latency. Pino uses RocksDB and is comparable to Apache Druid. Alexander joins the show to discuss Third Eye and explain why Pino is a useful building block for monitoring infrastructure. Alexander Pucher, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. My pleasure, Jeff. So you're an engineer here at LinkedIn, and monitoring is one of the things that you're focused on most right now. Monitoring is a very broad term. What are the different users at LinkedIn that need access to monitoring tools? Well, virtually everyone. So at LinkedIn, of course, we strive to do or make data-driven decisions. If you do not have monitoring tools or you don't collect the data, you're flying blind. And so... There's various tools, of course, on, on various levels of the organization. Right on the lowest level, you have performance monitoring, and you go a step higher, maybe uh, system health, like some key business metrics, how many uh, users do you have uh, viewing your pages, signing up. And then, of course, on the higher level, you have like the generic, say, uh, user engagement, user satisfaction, maybe enterprise revenue, and so on. And all of these different kinds of monitoring require different systems or different tools and different ways of doing it. And one thing that stands out is that oftentimes there is a lot of data that exists in different parts of the organization that other parts are not even aware of. And then the question becomes, well, if I notice that something is going wrong with my systems, how does this impact the business or vice versa? How does, say, a product decision impact the technology? And tying all of this together is one of the most interesting questions that I'm trying to answer and that I'm working on. The data that turns into quote-unquote monitoring data can come from a wide array of sources. Describe some of the sources that you're getting data from. Yeah, so again, it depends on which part of the organization you're talking about. For example, there's uh, basic performance counters, you know, your CPU and memory and disk utilization. There are Business metrics, user signups, and so on. These things uh, usually get collected via, say, uh, Kafka, right? Which is uh, LinkedIn is very famous for that. And then on the high level, you have maybe quantitative, but also qualitative data. Uh, but maybe what is your user engagement? But also what are different holidays that are going on around the world, and how are they impacting your business? What is product decisions that are made? Maybe AP tests and so on. So there's a wide variety of sources uh, where data can come from. So you have a high-level metrics like users visiting pages, lower-level metrics like CPU load or disk utilization, stuff like that. 
And if I understand correctly, a lot of this data gets shuttled to Kafka as kind of the primary bus of it. Maybe you could would call it the data lake or an in-between the data lake. Could you talk more about how Kafka fits into LinkedIn's infrastructure? Sure. So Kafka tracks most of the key business metrics, so to say. So usually uh, high-level interaction that happens from, say, members or even like employees inside of LinkedIn with the infrastructure, they're collected. So if you assume, for example, you're a user, you go to LinkedIn because you got the notification from a recruiter and you open this message and you interact with them, then, of course, first of all, we collect this information so that we don't notify you again. And then the second thing is, well, you take this information and you say like, hey, maybe this message was useful to you. Uh, You may want to collect or receive something like this in the future again. And then this information can also be collected and say like, hey, here's a valuable user engagement, right? This is something that you care about. And this information gets emitted via Kafka and then processed through a whole pipeline of uh, different systems which is, of course, there's Hadoop, there is uh, Samza, and so on. And then there's, of course, a data platform at LinkedIn, uh, which is known as UMP. And uh, that then builds on other systems like uh, Pino. Like third, I say it's the other, the reading end of this whole process. Kafka was originally created at LinkedIn, so we should just talk, we'll talk more about Kafka. Obviously, in massive use in data infrastructure today across the world. In fact, the use cases only seem to be growing, the, and the proliferation of Kafka seem to be growing. Can you talk about the access semantics and like the write and read semantics of Kafka? What exactly are we using Kafka for? Yeah, Kafka is really for high throughput and also reliable delivery of messages or events, whatever you want to call this. So if you build a infrastructure, be it for, for tracking or be it for like any, collecting any kind of business metric, then really what you use Kafka for is to make sure that when you emit data, this data makes it at very high bandwidth uh, through a system and it doesn't get lost. And then ultimately, of course, you collect this data in one way or another, whether you just write it to HDFS or you write it uh, directly into your analytics systems you end up usually with structures kind of like Lambda-style architectures. And then on the back end of this, you you analyze what's coming out of this. So if every piece of data makes its way through Kafka as a delivery system, could we just use Kafka as the data lake, as the source of truth for everything? Kafka is really the delivery mechanism, right? It makes sure that the data that should be tracked, is tracked, it doesn't get lost. And then it is the transport mechanism that shifts, collects this data that comes from you know, many different sources, many different services, servers, uh, maybe data centers, and delivers them into one place or multiple places if you're looking for a replication. And then once this delivery has happened, right, then there's a second step after this, which is the actual analytics on top of this data. In terms of where the data winds up after being in Kafka, it's often HDFS, the Hadoop distributed file system, because storage there is going to be very cheap. Can you talk more about the consumers of Kafka? So we're writing all of our data from all of these different sources into Kafka, and then Kafka is the means by which data gets from point A to point B. What are the different places where we are throwing data from Kafka? I mean, there's lots and lots of different Kafka consumers that are out there in the ecosystem. Right? I mean, LinkedIn itself is probably famous for its 
like data infrastructure because most of it is actually open source, right? Of course, you already mentioned uh, HDFS or Hadoop is like one place where this data goes, which is mostly uh, just for bulk storage, right? Uh, offline processing. But additionally to this, uh, there is other systems used at LinkedIn, for example, uh, SAMSA, right? That allows you to take this kind of streaming data and maybe combine it with offline batch data and then uh, join this data together so that you can ingest it into other systems, like, for example, Apache Pino, which is an OLAP system. And then you can combine whatever data sources you have, whether it's coming from Hadoop or it's coming from Kafka, or maybe it's ingested from something else. There might be some performance counters, for example, uh, that go into, say, RocksDB, and then uh, combine all of this data together to uh, run your analytics. You've mentioned a bunch of different components of data infrastructure that can be used to build a monitoring platform, for example. And we'll talk about Third Eye, which is a monitoring platform that you've been working on at LinkedIn. But these different data sources, whether we're talking about HDFS or SAMSA or Kafka, they have different latency characteristics and they have different write and read performance characteristics. Describe how these different characteristic different performance characteristics make them a good or a bad fit for monitoring applications it really depends on what kind of data you're collecting right? if you have say uh, high frequency time series maybe just bare performance counters then you're emitting at high speed and you usually want to have this data available with very low latency like maybe within just seconds of being emitted you want to know hey how is your server farm performing uh, if you have data that has more detailed, say, like high-dimensional information, uh, which may be, say, a user sign-up. Uh, if a new user comes to LinkedIn, they sign up, they decide, well, uh, did they get invited uh, from a friend or did they just sign up because they found LinkedIn useful directly? What browser are they using? Uh, are they coming from, say, the US, uh, Europe? Right? So some location information. This kind of uh, high-dimensional information is added, and this is what Kafka really shines at. And you have tracking events that have uh, lots of additional, maybe domain-specific information that needs to be collected. And usually that means that you get high-quality information relatively or near real-time speed. But usually now you're not talking about seconds, but you're talking about uh, minutes right? if you need to ingest this with a longer pipeline. And then if you go to a very high level, like there might be some data that you really just collect uh, manually. Right? Uh, maybe if you say, OK, uh, is there maybe configuration changes that are planned in the system or are there any upcoming holidays uh, for the business on a high level? This information might actually be entered by a human uh, into a database. And of course, in all of these cases, you talk about different types of data and different latency, but also different depths of information. And then when you join this data together, you ask yourself the question, well, what is it that you're really after? Do you care about the, the high-speed, uh, maybe aggregated cursor information, or do you care very much about the detail and the depth and, say, the dimensionality of the information? And then usually the more depth goes into it, the more delays is introduced uh, into this whole process going from origination of the data to origin, pretty much processing it in the end and analyzing it. Now, describing the latencies of the data is one direction go in, but there's also the the shape of the data. So um, the a JSON document, for example, might have many, many different fields, and if we wanted to process a large series of JSON documents in order to 
do an aggregation or do something at low latency for our monitoring purposes, this might not be so easy. And so oftentimes we are taking this highly dimensional data and turning it into some sort of columnar format. Can you talk about the differences between columnar and document or row-wise data? I mean, I work mostly on the OLAP or the analytics side. Right? So uh, the analytics side is usually more about uh, read performance and the performance of aggregating data. Uh, if you're in an OLTP setting or say transactional information, usually data that you say is the source of truth, then uh, people tend to use uh, like row-based storage. Right? I mean, up to better, this is like MySQL or this is uh, pretty much database systems uh, used inside of LinkedIn. It usually means that when you have an entity, like I don't know, a company, then all the attributes are stored together, right? The name of the company, maybe some description, uh, additional information, like what is their website, and so on and so forth. Uh, when you when you have this OLTP setting, then consistency is uh, of utmost importance, right? You don't want to lose information. Like if you send a message, you don't want the message to disappear or be delayed or something like this. Ultimately, though, if you go to the space of uh, analytics, uh, you say, well, I'm not the source of truth, right? I'm usually I'm taking the data from these OLTP systems and then somehow ETLing or transferring them into my analytic systems. And that introduces some delay, but ultimately it allows you to usually restructure uh, this data uh, in a different way so that you can uh, read it or aggregate it much, much faster as compared to OLTP systems. So help us explore this from an application standpoint. So we've got this data that maybe we are writing to a log file and we're writing a bunch of different fields uh, about the state of a system or maybe we're logging user behavior, high dimensional user behavior and the data gets logged into Kafka in this row wise format or this document style format when do we want to turn it into columnar data and what is the procedure for doing that? What kinds of systems do we want to use for that? Sure. At LinkedIn, really the biggest systems for this are like both Hadoop and Samsung. Right? The idea is to process this data and then structure it. For example, if you have an OLAP system like uh, Pinot, uh, it takes like tables and these tables have different chunks or like parts to it. Uh, they're called segments. Uh, this is really just optimized columnar uh, storage format where you try to combine uh, all the counts of page views or the counts of signups together and uh, instead of really going row by row or document by document. And when you have a system like Hadoop, of course, you just have the batch processing. You can usually do like highly efficient uh, optimization of these segments. But if you combine this with streaming, then usually you have to make this trade-off between high optimization, uh, which takes time, and the other side is probably like, what is the latency of the data? And then usually when you run an OLAP system that maybe serves production use cases, then this trade-off becomes pretty delicate, where you try, of course, to be as close to real time as possible, uh, maybe in the order of minutes, like five to 10 minutes, uh, but at the same time also have a high performance when these aggregation requests come in. So let's start to talk about this from an application point of view. So if we are building a monitoring system and we've got these different data components that we could use, whether we're talking about SAMHSA or talking about HDFS or talking about Kafka, and we want to build this monitoring application, we realize there is some 
gap in the systems that we have available, and so we end up building a new system, Apache Pino. This originated at LinkedIn, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So explain what Apache Pino is and how it differs from other data infrastructure tools. Sure. I think the most similar thing to Pino is probably uh, Druid, uh, Apache Druid. In case you're not familiar with this, it's essentially it's an OLAP system, but Pino uh, was really built for extreme scale and low latency uh, at LinkedIn. There's many, like both internal and external use cases that are covered, really both from delivering uh, statistics to users, say uh, the company pages, how many employees work at LinkedIn or Apple or Microsoft, and other use cases internally that may be used for business intelligence or even anomaly detection, A-B testing, and so on. And really, one of the core ideas of uh, building a system like Apache Pino is that you want to be able to process large amounts of OLAP data at really low latency. So we're talking data sets at a size of terabytes, and you want responses to your queries in the order of tens of milliseconds or even less. And so... Why can't we accomplish that with something like SAMHSA or you know, one of these systems that existed before? Like SAMHSA is really a tool to process your data. Pino itself is the actual database system that takes in queries, like essentially SQL-like queries, and then gives you responses, usually optimized for aggregations, saying number of views per company, these kind of things, averages, sums, minimums, maximums, these things. So we've talked about the role that Kafka plays, and you've also mentioned the term uh, Lambda architecture. The Lambda architecture was something that people were talking about a lot, uh, maybe five years ago or three years ago. The Lambda architecture was this idea that you have a slow leg of data and a fast leg of data, and the faster leg of data may not be completely consistent or you know you may get events out of order the slow leg of data ends up compensating for the inconsistencies of the fast leg of data but in exchange for that you you pay the penalty of some latency can you talk about the lambda architecture and how newer components were able to overcome some of the limitations of the lambda architecture i think lambda t- architecture is really I mean, it's a, say, a new term for an old problem. Even at, I mean, at LinkedIn, that was just a few days ago, we put out a blog post about Apache Calcite and how it uh, makes it possible for you to easily uh, handle this like, slow and fast lag of data. But ultimately, the real problem that Lambda Architecture seems to try to solve is to say, well, we have a trade-off usually between consistency or latency and performance under some resource constraint. And this problem goes back, I mean, way to the 90s or even before, right, with parallel databases like Volcano and so on, where depending on what is the current bottleneck uh, in the technology that's available, whether it's the speed of your disk or the amount of memory that's available or the perception bandwidth of your network and so on, you try to design a system that is optimized to take advantage of whatever is the resource that is the bottleneck, right? You all optimize for this one thing. And as technology changes, people change their, their designs or their architectures to well, optimize for, for different bottlenecks. 
And I mean, probably one of the most famous examples over the past probably decade has been uh, the Hadoop versus Spark thing, right? Where Hadoop was this the system that allows you to well farm out requests across large amounts of data that maybe fit only on like hundreds or thousands of servers and still come to a result uh, reasonably quickly. And then as memory becomes more readily available and you suddenly go to the next point saying, well, I don't really want to wait on all these disks. I want to train in memory and maybe I want to take more advantage of my faster network. Therefore, I need a batch processing system that now allows me to do lots of computation in memory. And this space keeps evolving, right? And in a way, when you look at a system even like Apache Pinot, then you see that there again, like LinkedIn started to take advantage of, say, the availability of like really fast like SSDs, the ability to process and ingest lots of data both from batch and from streaming uh, in parallel, uh, for example, with a system like Samza. And then farm this out across a bunch of servers and then do some intelligent optimization of the way that you store the data and the way that you balance load so that you can achieve really extremely low latency for aggregation queries, even on on massive scales of data. Now that we've talked about some different infrastructure components, can you give an example of a data type that you would want to record and that would make its way from being recorded into Kafka and through Pino and eventually make its way to a user's dashboard on a monitoring system? What exactly do you mean by a data type? So let's just say a user profile view or CPU load measurement, anything that we would want to use as monitoring data. Sure. Uh, well, let's take that profile view, for example. Say uh, some of your friends you, uh, visit your uh, LinkedIn profile, then uh, this information is collected by both to show you that somebody visited your profile and then also to know like, what are people interested in, like in general, on aggregate. So if there is a visit uh, to a profile page, then the fact that this visit happened is uh, emitted via Kafka. And then Kafka serves this piece of information both to uh, some of the OTP systems, right, so they can update the status, but also into this whole data pipeline, uh, pretty much uh, UMP. So there's two parts or two paths in this data pipeline that this thing takes. One is, of course, Kafka writes it to uh, HDFS, right, so that you have a persistent log of this information, but also because you want to have up-to-date or near real-time analytics information, you also send this Kafka event to, say, a, a processing system like Samsa. And then it is the job of Samsa to combine whatever has been in offline storage plus the incoming event, uh, join it together, and turn it into, say, a segment for a system like Pino that then gets added to the system. And from the moment where the segment is loaded uh, into this database system, any query that hits Pino will return the aggregate data plus whatever was added. And this then might be served back, for example, to you as the user again, when you see that the number of visitors of your profile page went up. You mentioned that this data might be quickly written to OLTP. Like when, and when the data is created, it's quickly written to an OLTP, online transaction processing system. And, and then much of this the remainder of the data pipeline might be for OLAP purposes, online analytic processing. Can you describe the difference between OLTP and OLAP? OLTP is really about transactional consistency. You want to make sure that 
to find both a trade-off between the performance of writes and reads. Right? You need to keep up with updates. On the other hand, you want to make sure that any change that you make is consistent and, and durable. I mean, there's this famous example of the, the bank account. If you send money from your bank account to another bank account, you either want this money to show up on the other bank account or the transaction to not go through. The last thing that you want is your money to disappear and then never come back again. In OLAP, you really try to optimize for read performance. So you accept the fact that your OLAP system is not going to be a source of truth. Instead, it's usually the OLTP system. And then you try to take the data out of the OLTP system in a way that uh, doesn't overload the original source system and in the other way still allows you to be pretty much up to date, at least in near real time. But this uh, transformation of data, like this loading of data, usually takes uh, an additional amount of time, which is why then OLAP systems are usually close to the, the state of the real world, maybe within a few seconds at best, or usually minutes or maybe hours, but allow you to then query it very effectively without having any negative impact on uh, your production or OTP system. And just to fill people in on the acronyms, this is one that I didn't know for a while. The process of getting from OLTP to OLAP is often called ETL, the Extract Transform Load Procedure. So now let's 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 take this from a different angle because I want to gradually illustrate what role Pino plays here. So now let's let's look at this from a top-down perspective. So let's say I'm using a monitoring platform like ThirdEye that you've built at LinkedIn. I want to sit down in front of Third Eye and be able to look at a dashboard that represents the user's profile views over time. Let's say all users in the United States. Like I want to be able to have this dashboard, you know, just in front of me. That's just how frequently are people looking at, let's say, their own profiles? The classic LinkedIn use case: people who are looking at their own profiles in the United States, and we want to be able to build a dashboard around that. What's going to be the query path for this kind of dashboard? Sure. Actually, one of the funny things is that that is not really a dashboarding tool, but you will still look at this data, uh, usually because you see some unexpected outliers. So to just roll with this example, I would say, uh, let's assume that... Uh, wait, wait, what, do you, what do you mean it's not actually a dashboard example? So the system, it visualizes data, uh, but the idea is really to uh, surface relevant data. So if you had a, you know, your classic like, company dashboards that might have like, hundreds or even thousands of metrics on there, then uh, the idea behind Thurda is to really say, well, instead of letting you scroll through uh, these thousands of metrics and then manually figure out what's going ah, on, okay. we uh, will try to figure out what is interesting aspects of this data and then surface that to you. You can, of course, still like, manually like, add metrics and, that you want to look at. But to just go back to the example, so yeah. let's just say... Uh, the number of views on your profile page uh, plummet dramatically, <laughs> and this is an outlier or an anomaly, right. then uh, you would look at this information in third. And of course, you can look at this information in various ways. Uh, you could uh, do some simple aggregation, say the number of views this week is lower than last week. Uh, I think actually LinkedIn usually sends you these summary emails that says <laughs> like how many people looked at your uh, profile page. Another way of doing this uh, would be to do it as a time series. So you could look at this, say, per day or per month or per hour, probably, uh, depending on how active your profile is. And the way that this information is surfaced is that then ThirdEye would simply go identify what is the name of the table and the metric that you're interested in, 
uh, maybe apply the filters. It's of course it's your profile, and uh, maybe you only care about uh, views from a certain geography. And then you take this information, you turn it into a SQL-like query, and you pass this query to Pino. And then Pino is, of course, it's a sharded, but it's a distributed database system, right? So you have a, a broker that then takes this query, uh, decodes it, uh, figures out which of its uh, worker nodes uh, have the relevant data, and then it farms all these requests to be processed. And then different shards that just process the data and this gets aggregated in a whole and then eventually just sent back to further. And of course, the takeaway there is that all of this information lives in Pino, right? So I don't need to actually go back to the real database system that stores your profile to scan through the entire table and figure out who viewed your profile. But instead, this information has been pre-processed and is readily available and doesn't really have any negative impact on what's going on in the real world. It's pre-processed sitting in columnar data files on HDFS? Pinot uses its own format. Uh, it does essentially a, a segment format. It's just then, think of it as a chunk of a table that is uh, highly optimized for aggregation, also depending on the use case. Okay. But it is, it's sitting on disk. It's not in memory. Yes. It's actually both on disk and in memory, right? Obviously, you have uh, disk, usually SSDs, but there's also uh, right, conventional, like the rotating uh, spinning disks. The other part is that you, of course, take advantage of memory as much as you can. So there's, of course, some some kind of caching mechanism. Right? Can, you, can you talk about that in more detail? Like, how does the latency characteristics of that data, obviously, if it's in memory, it's going to be served much faster than if it's sitting on disk. Do you ever need to kind of like specify to the system, like we need this dashboard to be up to date much more rapidly. So, you know, maybe the profile data should all sit in memory. Can you can you like kind of specify at what layer of the cache hierarchy you want your Pinot data to be stored? Uh, let's put it this, the theory is that the system should figure this out automatically. Okay. In practice, obviously, you will uh, pretty much input your domain knowledge and uh, tell the system that uh, certain data sets like, for example, we had these company pages with the statistics of number of employees. They serve production traffic and they should never leave cash because it's important. Mm-hmm. We could have used, for this application that we've described, we could have just used some other columnar data storage format like Apache Parquet. We could have just ETL'd these from Kafka, stored them in Apache Parquet files, and have some query system like a pig or hive, right, to query these these columnar data sources. Why do we need a brand new system like, like Pino? First of all, I mean, even on LinkedIn, you use many different columnar formats, right? So you mentioned hive, right? There's ORC, right? There's, of course, Avro, which kind of comes from the Hadoop side there. But really, the idea with Pino is, well, you optimize this for fast access and querying. So you pre-process this data, which means usually you don't just have the raw data. Uh, you have an index or usually in just one index, but different types of indices, right? So that you can both uh, filter the data quickly, aggregate it quickly. Pinot then does uh, another optimization in, in the segment format, which is uh, known as star cubing. So you pre-aggregate parts of the data so that you are uh, ready to respond uh, extremely quickly to uh, queries that aggregate across different slices or like different dicing of the data maybe at the cost of additional storage space, but really to optimize for a low, low latency. 
Okay. Is it the the querying system that is optimizing for the low latency or it's the, the storage format? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it has to play together, right? The one thing is, well, first you need to have the data accessible in a way so that you avoid scanning through, say, terabytes of data mm-hmm. in order to give a quick response. Even if it's columnar. Even if it's columnar, exactly. This is usually what star cubing is about. You try star, to... star cubing, is that what you call it? Yes. I've so, heard that term. Okay. Can you define that term? So uh, Pino has a, like one of the index formats that it uses is a star tree. And the idea is that if maybe let me give you a simple example. I, I, I look at page views. Uh, they might come from a different browser and they might come from a different platform, say mobile and, and desktop in the simplest sense. Now, if I were to ask the question, how many page views are there uh, in my system? The, the conventional way of doing this would be to just go through and, and scan all the rows that I have. Say, okay, well, here's all the views that I have on Chrome on mobile, plus all the views that I have on Safari on mobile, plus all the views that I have on Firefox on mobile. And then the same thing for desktop. Right? That way, when you have high-dimensional data, like that doesn't just have like two fields, but maybe 20 or 100 or 1,000, then even if you do a simple aggregation that just says like, hey, what is the total? Uh, you end up scanning through thousands, ten thousands, or billions of rows, right? depending on what's the cardinality of your data. And the idea of it, roughly speaking, the idea of it, uh, star cubing is to say, I want to avoid making these scans across billions of rows. Therefore, I will pre-aggregate parts of this data. For example, if I just care about, hey, what is the number of page views on mobile, then I will not just have, well, page views on mobile on Chrome and page views on mobile on Safari and page views on mobile on Firefox, right? But instead, I have this concept of a star column, like the all-encompassing or the, the aggregate dimension. So therefore, I can now ask the system, well, what is the number of page views on mobile? And then the system will go saying, okay, mobile and the browser is the star which is just the aggregation of the previous columns. And this, pre, this aggregation can happen before the system actually issues the query, right? When you generate these segments. And this is roughly what uh, star queuing is for. So it's a way of doing, I think this term is some, sometimes called roll-ups or pre-aggregation, right? But I've got my data that I'm collecting about user profiles and you know that data is getting ETL'd into my OLAP system, which in this case is Apache Pino. How does Apache Pino know what rollups to do? Because there are many different rollups. I mean, you, you've got all these columns you're saving. You've got the different profile view instances. You've got I don't know, maybe the the age of the person who who viewed the profile. You've got all these different things. And you know, if it were to just randomly generate aggregations and co- combinations of data in the system, it would be fairly random. How does it smartly aggregate different columns? There's multiple ways of doing this. Right? Uh, sometimes this happens literally by configuration. Right? Somebody figured out, oh, we'll need this type of uh, aggregation. Therefore, generate a star dimension for this. Another way of doing this is more automatic or heuristically almost, where uh, you can uh, identify, depending on how the data set looks like, what kind of aggregations can I have? And uh, then, for example, uh, one way to decide which things to pre-aggregate and which things to just leave as is, 
is to simulate how many rows would you scan given a certain aggregation query. And if this surpasses a certain threshold, then you start to pre-aggregate. So there can be some combination of of automatic discovery of what should be aggregated, and there can also be a manual specification there. And of course, you can really go off the rails with this. We can go and do all kinds of predictions of how this should be done and so on. But mm. roughly speaking, it's, it's either heuristics or some, some kind of manual specification. Yeah. Now let's revisit this latency question. And one way of, of revisiting it is the the discussion of batch versus streaming. So, you know, streaming data, you could say, is coming from one source and it's being, you know, pulled into another source on a data point by data point basis. And then the batch might be we let the data points accumulate in Kafka on maybe on a 24-hour basis and we batch you know, these, these uh, you know, 24-hour collections of data points into the data lake or into Apache Pinot. In this, this end-to-end system that we're describing, the, the generation of data from profile views through Kafka into Apache Pinot and eventually to the monitoring system, the end monitoring system, third eye, are there separate data paths for batch versus streaming? So there is different data paths, and actually they happen in parallel. However, it really all ends in Pinot, so to say, where if you have your Kafka events that get collected, and obviously you have an offline storage and you'll have some regular Hadoop job running through that just collects, say, 24 hours of those and then turns them into, say, these Pinot segments. And when a Hadoop does this, it runs all kinds of uh, optimization right, to, to make the segment as efficiently packed and pre-aggregated as possible. But that, of course, takes some time. Therefore, the second and, and parallel path to this is the streaming part, right? as you indicated. And typically, for streaming, it means that I uh, process these Kafka events in micro-batches. This typically entails just waiting for certain periods of time. Maybe I wait for a couple of seconds or minutes or maybe an hour. Uh, that way, I generate uh, segments that are still collections of a number of events. But of course, there's more segments, so usually creating them becomes slower. And then both these large offline segments and these maybe smaller streaming segments both get loaded into Pinot. And then it is up to Pinot to decide when a query comes in, can I query some of these highly optimized offline segments? Or is there only some up-to-date data that I can only get from these streaming or like online segments that were generated. Then usually this is also split across different servers uh, so that they don't interfere with each other. But it really comes down to optimizing or or wisely uh, choosing which segments to access at query time, depending on what's available in the system at that moment. Let's come back to third eye. So earlier when I gave this simple use case of wanting to know about the aggregation of people viewing profile pages in the United States, you pointed out that Third Eye is actually useful for surfacing insights that you didn't know about across the data, rather than just configuring dashboards about things that you already know you want to monitor. Describe some of the discovery features of Third Eye, and then we'll get into the engineering behind them. There's really two main tasks that Third Eye fulfills today at LinkedIn. One is pretty much the anomaly or outlier detection. Uh, the second part is 
then what goes more into the, the follow-up use case of anomaly detection, which is, oh, I found that there's an anomaly, now what caused it? Right? So I, I try to infer potential root causes. Now, for anomaly detection, uh, it typically means that I need to be somewhat choosy in, in what I monitor. If you monitor billions of metrics, each of which have you know, tens or maybe hundreds of subdimensions, you will always find some form of outlier, maybe just because it is noise. So there has to be some kind of uh, human discretion of what parts of the data are monitored and which parts are not. Of course, then different time series or different metrics will also behave in, in different ways. And sometimes there's some say like domain-specific uh, business logic that applies. Right? A team that looks at, say, ads and click-through rates has a different way of determining what is an anomaly than, say, a team that looks at discutalization and, and, and just uh, system stability. Now, third eye takes these various metrics and then uh, trains models against them. Uh, in the simplest case, it can be, say, a user-defined rule. Uh, it can get complicated enough to, say, different uh, ML uh, techniques. Say there can be say regression models, uh, various say spine regressions or or other ways, and if I find an anomaly, uh, then I will notify the user, and then the user can come into the system and say, okay, well, now I know there's an outlier, but what data exists in the context of this outlier? Say if I'm looking at ad click-through rates, then maybe the number of ad impressions and ad clicks might be relevant, and third I collects all kinds of this, these relationships between metrics, uh, between systems, and then uh, tries to intelligently and on demand walk through this dependency graph and the available data to give you other related metrics that also show surprising behavior during the same time window to help you as a user figure out where should I go with my investigation. So one thing you mentioned there, we covered this in, in a couple previous shows about anomaly detection, is that you can have these automatically generated anomaly detection systems, but such a high throughput system, it's hard to, to create a general rule for what constitutes an outlier or an anomaly. And so you might want to have people describe to the system, what does an anomaly look like? However, if we're talking about building a monitoring platform that's useful for ads operations specialists, back-end data infrastructure SREs, designers, all these different use cases, you don't want to give them a super complicated interface for describing anomalies. So what's the interface that you want to present to the user? Your, what is your anomaly? I totally agree with you. Right? It's essentially impossible to do it right for everyone. And I mean, probably one other thing to say is that no matter how well you're doing at anomaly detection, there's always a way to improve it. There's always something that you missed or there's always something that's too noisy. The other part to this is that I think about like the history of Third Eye or just even as it's used today, it is primarily about integrating data from like different sources across the organization. So you will still have uh, monitoring systems that are specific for, say, ads operations or monitoring systems that are specific to the SREs and monitoring systems that are specific to how do users actually use my platform. And then the task of ThirdEye is to be able to integrate data across these platforms and have 
some out-of-the-box tools that will cover hopefully like 90% of your use cases. The idea is not to really replace any of these individual systems because there's always some domain-specific thing that you can do better if you build a system just for your SREs, your designers, your ads. On the other hand, what Thredder provides might be more than good enough for simple use cases so that you don't need to build another dedicated system and instead you can go to this platform that shows you this integrated data. And you have the additional benefit that now you do not need to go to three different systems, the ads, the SREs, and, and, and the design interaction to figure out how did one thing impact the other, but instead you get it in one place. And you also have the advantage that if in any one of these specific parts you see a problem, you can go to Third Eye and because it is aware of these relationships between these different parts of the organization or the metrics, it can point you to the, the relevant other parts of the org. So LinkedIn's been around for a while, and I'm sure since the very early days, there were different monitoring systems. Could you explain how Third Eye contrasts with previous monitoring systems and maybe illustrate that you have a, you have a maybe an application that you can illustrate, like, here's what ThirdEye was able to enable, and this contrasts with older monitoring infrastructure. I mean, first of all, I mean, every company has monitoring systems. Yes. Even LinkedIn today has Multiple. many different <laughs> monitoring systems. And if you ever attempt to write the one monitoring system that solves all the problems, then you end up in N plus one monitoring systems. That's just how these things go. So instead... Uh, what we try to do with Third Eye is to integrate with these various domain-specific systems. Uh, we, of course, also take advantage of UMP or like Apache Pino uh, at LinkedIn that has lots and lots of the quantitative data already in it, and we can access it uh, effectively. So pulling all of this like into this platform, you want to, to integrate data but still provide like the backlinks to the, the various systems that you get this data from if somebody needs to dig even deeper. Uh, now, a classic use case that Thread enables that was not really possible before is to get an end-to-end -end view of how, say, LinkedIn as an organization interacts as a whole. To give a classic example, I think we also wrote this in our blog post, uh, there were cases where uh, the actually the ads team uh, noticed that or that certain parts of the feed, pretty much some, some sponsored content, uh, was not displayed correctly. There should have been more. And the whole team was investigating, well, uh, where does this come from? Obviously, there was like some change was made somewhere in the large distributed system of LinkedIn, but nobody really knew. Now, the ironic thing about this whole thing is that the, the monitoring infrastructure, of course, of the ads team was somehow connected to the monitoring infrastructure of, say, the feed team. Yeah. And the fee team itself also had its integration with, say, uh, some security components. But because this integration was on a high and, and aggregated level, uh, it just indicated, well, there's a problem somewhere. But independently of this, well, somebody actually sat down and, and was uh, trying out, well, how does Third Eye work? Like, what's the benefit of pretty much hooking ourselves oh, into yeah. this platform? <laughs> and what ended up happening is that pretty much immediately, as this data gets hooked up, Thora finds, oh, there's uh, some related problems in the feed and actually in wow. some, some security components. And 
there's other information that gets fed into Ferret too, like, oh, what is code deployments, right? What is, say, A-B tests and other things that run. And like one of the things that showed up was a new code deployment related to one of the security components. And because you can relate this data and you can kind of walk this dependency graph, and say, LinkedIn or just in an organization, you become aware of potential problems much faster. And then they just sat down, they looked at this code change, figured out that, oh, for security reasons where we are dropping our own uh, ads, we could simply roll that back and that really fixed the problem. Can you zoom in on that a little bit more? Because you you're, what you're describing here is a connection between data sources that were probably owned by two different teams being related to the timing of a deployment. So these are like these super disparate data sources. Talk in a little more detail about how ThirdEye was able to find a correlation between these highly disparate data sources. I mean, there's multiple ways of going about this. Right? In reality, even in, say, in a large organization like LinkedIn, of course, like lots of code is deployed and lots of changes happen. But usually when you see a problem occur, uh, you can wa- walk back to where it started. Maybe if you see it in something like your click-through rate and your ads, uh, this problem might actually come from somewhere else. Like maybe the number of impressions went down, which was the case there. So then you can usually see, well, when did this trend of like lower impressions start? Right? Then you get a, typically it's like a time point or a point in time. And when you have this point in time, you can see, well, what is other things that happened around this specific point in time that could have caused this? Did somebody start an AB experiment? Did somebody change the code? Did somebody change the configuration of the system? There's pretty much various events that happen. Maybe they're more like qualitative in information, but they still tell like in what point in time they happen and maybe in what part of the system they happen. And so if you have like high dimensional information, like in Pino, then you can say, well, I see it as a trend of lower ads impressions, but most of them are related to, say, my feed. Right? They're not coming from, I don't know, the, 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 like an ad somewhere and, and the mobile platform, but they're embedded in your feed. And so when you have this information, you know, okay, it must be related to the feed. Additionally, I have the time dimension that says when it happened. Therefore, if there is a code change that is close in time and related to the feed, it is probably relevant. Let's switch back to talking about the data infrastructure at a, a little bit of a lower level. You mentioned Druid earlier, and Druid is a, is a database that's growing in popularity, Apache Druid. And you said Pino was perhaps the closest you know, relative to Pino in terms of architecture might be Druid. Can you kind of give a comparison between Pino and Druid? So I can say one thing. Like I think Apache Druid is awesome, and it has a really great community. And Probably at smaller scale, uh, Druid totally gets the job done. Uh, there's there's some differences in say how the data is structured and like how yeah. I guess segments are stored and so on. But really, I think the core takeaway uh, is that Pinot works at an entirely different scale. And I mean, if you're really interested in like nitty gritty numbers and so on, there's like comparison benchmarks. There was a, a Sigmund paper uh, about Pinot, so. You can just uh, dig into this. Just to give you a feel for how like Pinot operates like at LinkedIn, right? It serves both uh, internal use cases, right, as the anomaly detection and uh, root cause analysis in Thera, but also pretty much member-facing or external uh, use cases like 
say, statistics about, uh, well, the companies, right? I brought this up many times already. So Pinot has a whole system, of course, multiple clusters of those. LinkedIn, they operate. I took some notes where I said, uh, for example, right now we're running about uh, 60,000 uh, queries per second on Pinot, right? Or uh, it ingests over 1.4 billion records, like Kafka events per second, right? These are updates in, in near real time to the system. And ultimately, when you're surfing all of this data, because it faces the members of LinkedIn, it also has to be really, really fast. So you're talking about tail latencies of less than 10 milliseconds. And I, I find this interesting because I've been covering these different data infrastructure tools. And what seems to be the case is if you look into any problem that seems to be a niche in data infrastructure, if you look a little bit closer, it's actually a gigantic opportunity. Like when Druid first came out, it was kind of like, oh, it's this database that's just for like operational analytics or whatever, but it actually turns out to solve a gigantic array of use cases. Do you have any perspective on what the broader array of use cases for Apache Pinot is? Is it can, can you describe in you know in, in some detail like what are the use cases where it's like Pinot is really the niche that is worth using for this use case? Yeah, it turned out that Pinot is essentially the niche to this entire Playdoc platform at LinkedIn. Um, so it of course it started for like high dimensional data, but now it pretty much covers any time series that there is in, in, in key business metrics at LinkedIn. Even like you store data in there that are related to, say, machine learning models, like types of features that you store. Sometimes you use Pino just to somehow put your data so that you can explore it interactively right, at fast speed so that you don't have to sit down and essentially wait for some Hadoop process to run through to, to answer your queries you end up using either Pinot directly or maybe a system like Presto, right, that like federates queries across different platforms. And so Pinot has really grown to be one of the core elements in LinkedIn's data infrastructure. So I want to begin to wrap up. You, you were the creator of Third Eye? Not really. I mean, it takes a village, right? First of all, it, it started sometime before I joined. Okay. Essentially, the, the funny part about this is that Third Eye pretty much started almost as a, a demo for some of the capabilities of Pinot, mostly it's like real-time slicing and dicing of data. Right? You have a data set that is like tens of gigabytes or even a terabytes in size, and then you can aggregate and drill down in it and render heat maps and other things within seconds. Right? So it's essentially user interaction. And this demo immediately actually got traction because it but delivered a lot of value for mm-hmm. people that were doing like biz ops or just looking at just key business metrics. They were doing monitoring tasks. And it really snowballed from there and this became its own effort. When I joined the project, that was just over two years ago, really the first main use case was this anomaly detection and it is up to this point. And then the part that I contributed a lot to was then this interactive root cause analysis, really the ability to go from okay, here's an outlier in one metric that might be interesting to saying, here's the other related things that either show outliers or have some kind of surprising behavior. And then also, of course, integration with all kinds of other systems like, hey, here's your Jira tickets, here's your configuration changes, your code deployments, external holidays, and so on. Things that might explain why this outlier happened. Okay, well, we're basically out of time. Maybe uh, you can close off by just giving any 
vision for the future of these two projects that you're interested in building in the near future, either Pinot or Third Eye? I mean, Third Eye has itself a lot of avenues, of course. You end up providing business intelligence inside of LinkedIn. Well, it turns out that this kind of business intelligence might also be interesting for actual enterprise customers of LinkedIn, for example. Uh, so this is avenues that are being explored. Another thing is, of course, for Pinot, like, there's always another way to improve scale or reduce the amount of data latency and so on. So there's lots and lots of work to do, and uh, we're certainly not going to get bored. Well, Alexander, thank you for coming on the show. It's been really great talking to you. Thank you, Jeff. Wow.